Hi, everybody. This is Christian Cison welcoming you to another, yes, another episode of the Third Fridays podcast. Last month, we talked more about Defend from Day One and how it can be used with uh, good investigation practices and making sure that we accept the claims that are compensable and deny the ones that are not. Uh, and that's really the goal uh, of a defense uh, attorney in, in assisting an insurance carrier or a self-insured employer and any claims representative that uh, plays a role in this process. So be sure to check that out. Uh, but we do have some good news. Uh, we Our firm really got a favorable board panel decision on a controverted matter. And I'm going to welcome Joseph Melchioni to the show today uh, because he was really responsible for putting through uh, our defenses. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you very much, Christian. It's an honor to be here in the Kill Room. Uh, I know I follow a long list of esteemed guests, so I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. That's right. You did reference that this is the Kill Room. Uh, we're coming to you live uh, in a place without any windows. So I like people to feel like they're in the middle of a Dexter episode where if they don't do well, then they don't leave the room. Actually, I think that's kind of cool, but I'm ready for the challenge. <laughs> All right. Okay, so let's talk about... Um, this particular case. Now, out of common courtesy, we're probably going to, you know, not talk about specific names, uh, attorney names, judge names, just so that we keep it, um, you know, keep everybody out of it that may not want to be included. Um, but essentially, let's start out with basic facts of the case. What did the claimant allege happened? Okay, so the claimant was a concierge at a uh, maintenance company. His job basically was to sit at the front desk, receive and send out mail, and allow people in and out of the building. The claimant alleged that on a random date in 2016, November of 2016, while on a lunch break, he was deboarding a bus on his way back from the supermarket, and he fell injuring his knees and his right arm. Um, and he claimed that he gave notice on the date of accident to his supervisor. They all do, right? Oh, of, course, of course. Right. Um, and uh, the carrier subsequently decided to appropriately deny the claim because the claimant didn't file his employee C3 form, uh, his, the form that's required to perfect the claim, until over a year after the date of accident. So they appropriately denied initially on that basis, citing that the uh, accident was happened outside the scope of his employment, and that his uh, claim form was filed untimely. And that's, and that's a good point you bring up. Uh, a lot of times, since we have so many cases, uh, I don't want to say it's easy, but uh, you know, something like that can fall through the cracks, right? You know, we see a C3 that alleges a work accident, and then we just do our due dil diligence to really investigate it. But a baseline you know, uh, investigation into when that C3 was filed, and in your instance, a year, can really provide almost the impetus for us to, to, you know, really bring out those red flags and really uh, hammer down on why this was done so quickly, or not not quickly enough. Right. No, I think that that's a, a very important point, and in almost every other case, um, that's a fact that could be easily overlooked. As you know, when we get these cases in, sometimes we, we may not even have 30 days to file the appropriate documents, so it's important to carefully look over every aspect, every minute detail, to see that all the appropriate defenses are put out. But in this case, the carrier did a wonderful job at the outset by providing us with a copious amount of relevant information to support the defenses that we had raised. And they also pointed us in the direction. They, they said, look, take a look at this C3. It's filed a year late. Take a look 
Um, in this instance, I didn't mention this before, but the claimant also uh, didn't lose any time from work from November of 2016 until the summer, July of 2017, for which he went out of work for an unrelated neck and back surgery, for which he submitted leave of absence paperwork, specifically claiming that it was unrelated to his job. And the carrier provided us with all this information at the outset, which made kind of the preparation of our denial documents and pleadings uh, a lot easier. And it almost helps you prepare that story, right? Because if it's a lot different if you know the claimant loses time from work as a result of this alleged accident and then is filing the claim thereafter. But if he's still working and you can really point to the event that is the reason why he really did file the C3 late – you know, it's more things that we can throw against the wall and really prove to uh, emphasize why a denial is appropriate. Correct, and also gives us more fodder to impugn the credibility of witness at the trial. Um, if we are prepared and we know this, all the facts of this case inside and out, that's more we can bring to the table at the trial. And if the claimant is being untruthful, um, that'll come across uh, through his testimony in front of the judge. And every little bit counts when we're denying these cases, so... Yeah, that's a good point. So, let's let's go to the pre-hearing conference. Sure. Uh, you were you were there, uh, and there was something interesting about an additional witness. Uh, you know, based on the arguments raised by uh, opposing counsel and uh, what we wanted to do to really assert the defenses. Correct. So, in this particular case, um, we asserted our defenses through our uh, timely filing of our PH sixteen point two, but we really didn't have. A strong set of witnesses. We didn't know. Uh, his, his C3 form, which was filed late, was quite illegible. So uh, we really couldn't make out most of what it said. And uh, we didn't know specifically who he had given notice to. And the employer wasn't aware. So at the pre-hearing conference statement, I asked if I could take his testimony briefly and asked him uh, if he gave notice and to whom. And at the conference, uh, he stated he gave it to his direct supervisor. So immediately I requested of the judge at that hearing the opportunity to present the supervisor that the claimant had named as a rebuttal witness at the trial. And the, uh, the opposing counsel instantly screamed, put his hands on the desk, Your Honor, this, uh, claimant, this witness was not listed properly in the 16.2, uh, therefore he should be precluded. Which was an interesting argument, I think. You know, I mean, it's using the codes, rules, and regulations to try and have a claim be established almost at the pre-hearing conference. But I thought it was kind of contradictory to what really they wanted to prove because just picture yourself as a judge where the claimant's attorney does not want the supervisor to testify. You know, if that's the person who can verify that notice was, was received, you would want to cross-examine that witness if you truly believe the claimant. And it would almost seem to me when I was looking at this case that they're really making this argument, yes, okay, on procedural grounds, but just the substantive effect of hearing that it was weird to me. Like you wouldn't want that to really happen. You wouldn't want the supervisor to testify where you can supposedly work your cross-examination magic and, and get the claimant to, to, to really uh, look more credible. I think you're totally right, and I think uh, that's the exact same perspective that the judge took. The judge said, well, this is the, this is the uh, witness that the claimant claims he's telling us he gave notice to. We weren't uh, aware of this person before. Why not bring them? And, of course, uh, as you stated before, the claimant's attorney wanted to win and establish the case on procedural grounds, so he made the 
the presumptive procedural argument. But if we're looking for to, to uncover the truth in the matter, you're exactly correct. Why not bring in the appropriate people that can testify as to the truth of the facts? Okay. So the, the judge allows this new witness in, right? And what does it do for us from pre-hearing conference to trial, right? We, we learn of this new witness. Uh, take me through the steps uh, that, you know, you were going through. Uh, from pre-hearing conference to trial. Okay, so from directly after the pre-hearing conference, we had a trial date. Uh, we had a few weeks, about 30, 35 days to uh, get our substantive argument in order, our procedural argument in order, and to prep the witness. So uh, I called the witness and, and had a discussion with him regarding the facts of the case. Witness informed me, first and foremost, he never received notice that the claimant was injured on the date that he was claiming. Uh, the claimant didn't lose any time of work between the date of accident and, and almost a year later when he requested a leave of absence for a unrelated surgery. Um, I asked specifically if the procedures for properly filing a workers' compensation claim are posted anywhere at the facility. He informed me that they're clearly posted in multiple languages in the um, lunchroom and that um, all new hires are provided with that information upon hiring. Um, and he provided he, – he stated that when he received the leave of absence, uh, paperwork from the claimant, again, he pointed, pointed me in the direction that it clearly stated that, it, that the surgery was not work-related. Now, this was later uh, contradicted through the claimant's testimony at trial, but I was fully prepared for all aspects of this, uh, the arguments to be made at trial. That's a, that's a good point. I, I think you know it almost brings – you, you back to when we first got the file before the pre-hearing conference, right? If you weren't so proactive in having denial pleadings filed timely and, and having them be materially uh, complete and, and full of information and really disclose what we want to do in this case, then you, you it basically puts you in a good position when you get that witness information, right? You're not like scrambling – uh, you know, defense defense firms that are are competitors that will remain nameless. You know, they might be meeting that witness for the very first day on the day of the trial. I mean, we've both seen that happen, and to me, that's like my worst nightmare. That I don't know the witness who's going to be there on the day of the trial, and I think that you know, the defend from day one uh, actions that you took before the pre hearing conference really put you in a good position to then react to a new witness being given to you at the pre-hearing conference and then in a good position to really prep him in what we now know, you know, 30 to 35 days between pre-hearing conference and trial. It's not, it's not a long time. I totally agree. And your, your defend from day one mantra couldn't be more appropriate for all cases, but in, in particularly for this one, um, if I had just went in and uh, with with uh, no witnesses or, or not prepping the witnesses or not looking at this information critically from the beginning. And also some credit in this case goes to the client, like I said, who provided me with great information. If we didn't defend from day one, uh, we, there was a very good chance that this case would have been established. It, it's the nuances in this particular case and in many cases that separate uh, claims that are allowed and disallowed. So, so that defend from day one is very, very important. Okay, so now we we have moved from pre-hearing conference to witness prep and, and really handling the file in between hearings to to the trial, right? Yeah. Now, uh, trial with multiple witnesses can be you know around an hour, and we're not going to go through every single detail, but uh, the pertinent facts of what happened at that trial, uh, you know, you were there 
Can you give our listeners uh, some kind of an idea of what really happened on that day? Okay, so we began, as most trials begin, taking the claimant's testimony. Uh, the claimant's uh, attorney uh, on direct examination basically asked the claimant to describe what happened. The claimant described that he fell while on a lunch break, uh, injuring his uh, right hand, right hand and, and, and both knees. And uh, what the claimant's attorney was trying to get the claimant to testify to was he was on his lunch break, but there were times, the substantive argument, that there were times when he had to return to his job in cases of emergency when uh, when there were coverage issues. And therefore, based upon that argument, uh, the employer still maintained control over the claimant. Uh, but really, what really was going on, the claimant went to get lunch and he fell off the bus on the way back, not performing any duties for the claimant. Right. It's almost the argument that because the employer has a general amount of control. Right. I mean, that's, that's it's within the realm of possibility <laughs> right. that in some galaxy far away on any random day that he'd have to be called back. Therefore, there's a slippery slope and the employer always maintains control of the, over the claimant. I sure. think that's a very interesting way to go about it. Uh, it basically says that because he is an employee of an employer, then any accident he sustains would be right. compensable. Absolutely. And we know that there's certain requirements uh, that you have to, you know, essentially be in the course of and the accident has to arise out of the employment for that to happen. And I, I think that's a very good indicator that we know we have a good case when the claimant's attorney is making that argument. Absolutely. And pursuant to that, the, I could tell that the claimant was trying to – the claimant's attorney was trying to rebut the claimant's testimony before I asked questions. For instance, he asked, who did you give notice to? He, he, he noted that he gave notice to the employer, the supervisor that we had brought in on the date of the accident, but he gave it orally. When asked about the leave of absence paperwork, why he noted that the uh, surgery was unrelated to the work accident, he said because he was told by someone at the office that he didn't remember. Um, and as to why he didn't submit a C3 form for a year later, he clearly stated because he just was unaware of the procedure. So I knew right off the bat that they were trying to rebut the claimant's testimony because uh, he wasn't going to be a very credible witness. So I was able to attack that right away on cross-examination. That that also is very interesting because, you know, what's the first thing we learn in law school, right? Or maybe the first time you get like a speeding ticket, right? Ignorance of the law is not an excuse, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So I, you know, maybe that's a witness prep issue, but I, I think that maybe he honestly didn't know the procedure despite it being posted in the break room right. in multiple languages. Either way, it, it doesn't look good whenever someone says, I don't know or I don't recall, that kind of thing. Right, but as you know, Christian, better than anybody in the room right now uh, – Workers' comp law in New York State is a little bit of the Wild West. We know what the law is. We know what the case law says. But that wouldn't prevent any random judge on any random day from making a decision based upon the claimant's testimony. So we do, again, it goes back to that defend from day one, knowing all the nuances so that we throw everything at the wall and try to get it all on the record as soon as possible. Okay, so claimant testifies. Uh, you're ready to bring in the supervisor to testify, right? Yes. So immediately before I bring in the, the supervisor to testify, the claimant's attorney uh, reasserts his objection, firmly arguing. He stands up, ruffles his feathers, looks me right in the eye. You know, I'm re reasserting my, my argument that this, this witness should be precluded because they were not properly listed on the PH 16.2. Therefore, his testimony should be stricken. He shouldn't be allowed to testify. The judge, of course, allows the testimony. And the witness testifies that no notice was given. The first he ever heard of this incident was in preparation for the uh, this trial, which I'm sure you can testify to is very common uh, from employer witnesses in, on, uh, in, in 
cases where there's no uh, notice was given. And he basically testified that he didn't know anything else about the case, which is what I wanted him to testify to. And uh, on cross-examination, the claimant's attorney really didn't have too many questions to ask. So that, that went pretty smoothly. Okay, and we have lay witness testimony. Does the judge give any reasons behind his decision, or was it a, a just, I'm disallowing the claim and with nothing else? How, how did the disallowance come into play? Oh, spoiler alert, claim got disallowed. That's why we're here, right? I'm not going to talk about right. a case where, where, where right. the judge decided against us. So uh, what happened that, you know, in terms of the environment around you when the disallowance is being handed down? Right. Well, uh, as is common, uh, the, the judge allowed the attorneys to make summation arguments. And um, claimant's attorney went first, argued that on the merits, the substantive merits of the case, the employer maintained control over the employee during his lunch break because sometimes he may have been requested to come back in an emergency situation. Um, but he really vociferously argued that the claim should be established simply because our PH 16.2 didn't appropriately raise defenses and list witnesses in a definitive manner. He spent a considerable amount of time really pressing that argument and theatrically, you know, I felt like I was in a few good men, which I'm not going to lie, was kind of awesome. Uh, he's really standing up and throwing papers around. Um, so he really, really argued on those procedural grounds that the case should be uh, established right then and there. And then I had to go, and I was able to offer a pretty strong uh, summation argument, arguing that, listen, substantively, he was not ever required to, to return back to his post during a lunch break. It happened once in 20 years. And uh, besides that, RPH 16.2 was more than sufficient, and the employer witness should have been allowed because the claimant specifically identified him as the person to whom he gave notice, uh, following the accident. so And then it was rather unceremonious. The judge uh, looked over at the claimant and said, I'm very sorry, but I'm disallowing the claim uh, based upon untimely filing, Section 18, uh, no notice, rather, and um, and based upon the fact that the accident occurred outside the scope of his employment. Okay. So we know that when we win that trial, that's going to be appealed, right? We, we know for a fact. And in this case, right? I knew right away because the claimant's attorney yelled at me from across the table that I'm appealing uh, on these <laughs> issues. I've beaten you guys before, you guys being our firm, on the on the issue of the procedural uh, PH 16.2. And he said, expect my, my appeal. Then he looked at his client and said, don't worry. I'm going to get you a lot of money. I've won before, and I'm going to win again. So I Ooh. knew that appeal was coming. I had a little bit advance notice that that appeal was coming. That's uh... – that's a that's a tough one, you know. Yeah. I usually want to say manage should, manage I, expectations, but I I'm really going for it. He didn't even shake my hand. He literally walked out of the room. Okay, but. okay. Well, you know, sometimes emotions get the best of all of us. So sure. you know, we don't want to um, uh, say that we're we're never like that. Uh, no, although agree. for the most part, uh, I think you especially you know keep a good even keel about things and, and keep a professional uh, way about us. I do want to bring up, because there was a really interesting thing about this case, um, that your paralegal actually helped you create a different argument on an appeal with respect to whether an exception was noted, right? Uh, absolutely. Well, what I – what happened was I always write this down. Uh, at the end of every trial, there's there's – no one knows what the disposition is going to be. Everyone's a little nervous, and uh, I learned early on in my prior life as an attorney uh, work, before I worked for Lois, which – Again, I don't know why I ever worked anywhere else but Lois, but I did. Good marketing. Nice. Thank you. Um, to, to pay attention to exactly what happens after trial. So when the judge issued the opinion, her disposition, we all 
you know, there's a little brief excitement over what, what we do next. Who notes their exception? And I specifically noted in the in the uh, at the hearing, I wrote down on my notes, real big claimant didn't note their exception to the to the finding. And I handed that note to my paralegal the minute we got back. And then by the time we got the appeal a month later, and many other things happened, I forgot that even happened. But he kept it on file. So when it was time to write the rebuttal to the claimant's appeal. Um, that was just another more grist for the mill that I threw in that that brief to try to keep that claim disallowed. Yeah. And that's I, I think that really exemplifies the teamwork uh, that we like to uh, have in, in an ideal world, right? Where we're all working together, uh, we're all working towards the same goal. And when someone else does well, it's good for the team, right? And I think that was a really good example of someone really chipping in where they really didn't have to, and they they really helped you add another layer to your rebuttal. I couldn't agree more. And beyond that, we, you know, Lois here at Lois, we have wonderful paralegals. It's another little little uh, stab there. But um, also, my paralegal was, was assisted me in case law research because we wanted to be sure we kept this one in the win column. So in my uh, rebuttal, I wanted to make sure that we had ample case law to support the judge's decision. Okay, so we kind of jumped ahead to what the rebuttal was about. But let's let's let's. Talk about the appeal that the claimant submitted in this case. Was there anything different or anything interesting that you noted uh, as far as what was in their appeal? Or was it more of the same arguments that they were making at trial? Well, what I found most interesting, Christian, was that the, the claimant's attorney didn't waste too much time on arguing on the substantive merits of the case. He jumped right to the procedural uh, issues that he had raised at trial, stating that our, our denial pleadings, our PH 16.2, was vague. Um, that our witness should have been precluded because it wasn't listed on the denial pleadings, and that um, there was very little argument at the end that the case should have been allowed based upon substantive grounds. So really the thrust was the procedural grounds he was hoping to win on. Okay. So to rebut that, right, we, you know, we look at the standard, right, and we look at our PH 16.2, and as has been the case uh, – for that particular trial, but also in all of our denied cases, I don't have a, you know, I don't have an ounce of doubt that our pH 16.2s fall lower than that standard. And just, you know, you just to confirm, like that pH 16.2 was pretty bulletproof, right? Uh, I said, I believe so. We asserted all the defenses that were requested. We listed the witnesses that we thought would be helpful. And then we included language that uh, we would also present any eyewitness that was identified by the claimant and any representative that was named by the employer that would be necessary to rebut the claimant's testimony. Now, on its face, I guess that sounds vague. But when you have 30 days to prepare, or sometimes less, a full investigation and prepare these denial documents, sometimes you just don't have more. And I think that claimant's counsels, in, in many circumstances, they prey on the vague language as a means to get uh, cases thrown out on procedural grounds. And I think that they must have been successful in the past because it's been used in increasing uh, uh, amounts of time over time, that same argument. Well, let's emphasize, emphasize that a little bit, actually, because you could theoretically have a case where you're not really providing the value to the client from pre-hearing conference to trial or before the pre-hearing conference. And so your actions aren't really following up uh, on the, what's being asserted in the PH 16.2, right? So it would look worse or even more vague if you were to come up at trial without an employer's witness, for example, without a prepped employer's witness, or without an effective cross-examination of the claimant as to the timeliness of his C3 uh, and, and all that. 
But Absolutely. the fact that you were able to really emphasize the nuts and bolts of the defense from point A all the way to point Z, it really takes this whole idea that the PH 16.2 is vague. That It really throws it out the window. I totally agree. Personally, I don't know what more would have been expected of our firm to do in that amount of time. We we clearly listed all of the defenses that were raised and the defenses that we ultimately prevailed upon. And then with regard to the witnesses, we literally followed the letter of the law. I mean, the claimant noted at the pre-hearing conference, which theoretically is supposed to be a hearing to kind of get all of the facts and ducks in a row uh, for the eventual trial, we literally named and requested uh, that witness, which we previously were not aware of this person's identity prior to that date. So I really don't know what more we could have done. But of course, as you know, Christian, that didn't stop the claimant's attorney from making that argument. Right, right. And then so the shiny board panel decision comes out. Uh, Which I want to note became final today, Christian. So Oh, that's right. It's a special day right. today. It became final and <laughs> it was not a 30 day. Is, okay. Um, hopefully there's no scanning delay issues, I which we not. are accustomed to. I but I remember when this came out, first thing I did was looked at the filing date of this decision. And I, and I, I don't give kudos to the board that often, but you know, a three-month review period from claimant's appeal to the filing date of this decision was kind of impressive, actually. I totally agree. And if you want to know the truth, I think it's because there have been an influx of cases on this very issue, and I think that the judges are well aware and kind of anticipated it. Um, and the issue that I'm speaking about is the... Um, sufficiency of the 16.2. So I think that they were ready, and I'm happy that they were, were ready, and I'm happy with the with their decision. That That's good insight. Almost really just reinforces, uh, you know, dedicated uh, attorneys that can really step into uh, the shoes of their client and really present and maintain those defenses. But, you know, I, I don't know how you feel about favorable board panel decisions. When I get them, I print them out, and I just like... Well, Christian, no, this almost. one's framed in my office. I've got a glowing marquee around it. Not, not to, not to brag, but uh, it's, it's not even about bragging. It's just about when you're right and 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 the court uh, verifies that you're correct. Uh, it's a good feeling. Right, and you know, we're obviously not going to read the entire board first board. Uh, you know, the board panel decision itself, but. Almost in the second sentence of the facts section, the claimant filed a C3 on September 27, 2017, setting forth that he suffered injuries, blah, 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 in a work-related accident on November 4, 2016. It's almost like, hey, we're telling you that this is already a little bit weird because the C3 was filed a year later, something that you pointed out at trial. And you already almost know once you read that, that's like, okay, I think... We're, we're going, getting towards a good decision here. Well, you know, Christian, I'm, I'm very happy you bring that up because you're right. I mean, in this case, I was kind of really looking for this decision to come out because the case, in my opinion, was very clearly properly disallowed on the substantive ground. So I was afraid in this case that the, lodge, the um, panel was going to kind of kick the issue of the 16.2 sufficiency out and just render a decision on the substantive merits of the case so that they didn't have to decide the issue of the 16.2. I really felt strongly about the substantive merits, but I really, what I was hoping for was a definitive decision on the sufficiency of our 16.2 denial pleading so that we could use it in the future. I'm very happy that they also took the time to address that issue and also found in our favor. Right. And just to be brief about it, you know, the board panel says that the form was adequately completed and that it identified or indicated any eyewitness identified by the claimant and any representative of the employer necessary to rebut the claimant would be presented. And I actually want to 
take that back all the way to the pre-hearing conference where you have the claimant testify very briefly as to who he provided notice to. So as soon as he makes an allegation there that I provided notice to John Doe on this date, that becomes a rebuttable presumption that we can present a witness for. And like I said, that reinforces the earlier PH 16.2. And I think he really, you know, kind of put himself in a hole. And I'm talking about the claimant here by making that statement because his C3, like you said, was very illegible and it forced him to really, you know, pay the piper and essentially lock him into an actual statement. You're right. Well, this is a case that I knew the facts were in our favor and I really wanted to win. And as you know, Christian, with these Section 21 presumptions, if the court wants to find uh, a claim to be compensable, they can almost do so. And I really needed a witness, and I knew going in I didn't have a strong rebuttal witness, which is why I took a stab in the dark and and asked uh, for his testimony at that pre-hearing conference because I was afraid the facts were in our favor, but that – Without a rebuttal witness, the presumptions may fall in, in the claimant's favor. So I really wanted to win this from the start. But, but um, yeah, that defendant from day one uh, couldn't be more true. Well, bringing it back full circle and always uh, uh, making me feel good about the, the mantra that I pound my chest about. But you're right. Uh, you know, for everything to go well, everything has to go well, Absolutely. right? So, you know, whether it's an IME that concedes causal relationship or a witness that doesn't show up or a witness that's not prepped, you can think of the vast amount of things that would compile a laundry list of all the problems that could uh, turn a properly controverted case into an established uh, case and then really hurt our clients going down the road. So every little uh, I has to be dotted. Every little T has to be crossed. And, and I do want to commend you on a, on a nice job in this case. I remember reading the decision, and I knew a little bit about the case beforehand. But it's always nice uh, to see, you know, the fruits of your labor really memorialized in a, you know, a six-page document, right? Well, I appreciate that, Christian. And I don't know if you know your mantra is defend from day one. My mantra is what would Christian do? So uh, I woke up that morning, and as I do every day before I even eat breakfast, what would Christian do? And I proceeded that way, and in this case, it came out in the firm's favor. So thank you. Well, uh, I'll, I'll remember that. I don't really know quite how to respond. I guess I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I like that I'm flattered that someone thinks of what I would do. But uh, I think you did everything perfectly in this case, Joe. I think that uh, the client's interests were served perfectly. And you know, maybe even if there's a late appeal, I'm sure that uh, we'll be in a good position to uh, rebut that one as well. So I do want to thank you uh, for coming on the show today. Uh, I do want to apologize to Greg Lois. Again, there's not enough time for him. He'll have to wait next month. Uh, but this is Christian Cison, Joey Melchioni. Defend from day one, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Christian.